State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by the KP Movement Institute, offering online and in-person coaching services for those seeking pain-free movement, peak athletic performance, or to improve their overall health. Whether you've been training for years or are just starting out, the coaches at the KP Movement Institute will create a personalized training solution that fits your specific needs. Not only will you optimize your movement and function, but you'll be educated, empowered, and inspired towards a healthier and more active lifestyle. Contact info at kineticperformance.ca to set up your complimentary consultation today. Welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Youngsma. This week, we have a very special guest, the back mechanic himself, Dr. Stuart McGill. If you don't know who Dr. McGill is, you must have been hiding under a rock for the past 10 to 15 years, or maybe you're new to the fitness or the rehab industry, but he is a professor emeritus at the University of Waterloo, where he was a professor for over 30 years. His laboratory and experimental research clinic investigated issues related to the causal mechanisms of back pain, how to rehabilitate back pain people and enhance both injury resiliency and performance. His advice is often sought by governments, corporations, legal experts, medical groups, and elite athletes and teams from around the world. His work produced over 240 peer-reviewed scientific journal papers, several books and textbooks, some of which I actually have, and many international awards. He mentored over 37 graduate students during this scientific journey. During this time, he taught thousands of clinicians and practitioners in professional development and continuing education courses around the world. Today, he continues as the Chief Scientific Officer for BackFit Pro, and he regularly sees clients with difficult back cases who have tried everything else and are thus referred to him for consultation. In this episode, we discuss his path to becoming a world leader in spine biomechanics, understanding back pain, and how to have tough conversations with clients. Let's dive right in. Welcome, Dr. Stuart McGill, to the State of the Industry podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fabulous. How about awesome. you, Adam? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well. This is my second podcast recording of the day. The other one was this morning with somebody in Poland with uh, Nicole Rodriguez. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Nicole, but um, yeah, so I had, this is my second time. So if I look tired, it's been because I've been on a computer staring at a screen and talking and taking notes all day. So I'm looking forward to getting into this because I know we met back at Swiss, I believe it was in 2018, we met, uh, you were presenting, you were wearing your uh, Waterloo Warriors shirt and uh, or jacket. And instantly, as soon as I saw that, I thought to myself, it's a Waterloo guy and I'm a Laurier guy, but I did do my master's under a Waterloo guy. So I guess I, you know, I kind of have to accept both of those schools. And so, because um, I did my master's under Bill McElroy, who is a good friend of yours, a colleague of yours, and you guys actually grew up playing football together, I believe. 
Uh, Bill was our high school quarterback, so in, uh, I, I, I hope he will tell you I saved his rear end once or twice, and uh, in practice during the week, I'd be after his uh, backside, so, uh, <laughs> but I've known Bill for uh, a lot of years, and he's a, a fabulous scientist and a fabulous fella. Yeah, he's a he's a gem. He's a gem. So I actually I did my master's when I was at U of T, but he was um, he was my supervisor. Who so he drove into U of T once a week, twice a week, and we had our well, chat. Uh, and then the rest of the time, I was on my own, basically trying to. Well, well a quick that. story on that. I was the uh, department chair at University yeah. of Waterloo, and I knew if I could somehow attract Bill McElroy to our program, it would really propel a certain aspect of the department. And it took me about three years of uh, inviting him out, taking him out to dinner and that kind of thing. But I finally got him to uh, come and he's, he's told me uh, uh, several times that it was a great career move for him. So I'm not feeling guilty, but uh, <laughs> it was a, a method to that madness for sure. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So, I'm always interested in this because every time I talk with uh, an expert in their field, whether it's coaching, training, rehab, uh, the spine, it's always interesting to find or discuss how they got into the specific realm that they're in. And specifically researchers, when you're looking at their specific research and how they kind of found their way or meandered their way through their high school, undergrad, and into their master's and then PhD. How did you get into studying the spine? And how did you become what many know you as probably the world's leading expert on spine and spine biomechanics? People are probably expecting me to say, well, I had a plan and I executed it to become a, a professor of spine biomechanics, et cetera. But Bill will tell you uh, that uh, that was uh, nothing like what happened uh, to me. It was, like many things in life, it just simply evolved. And you meet certain people, uh, certain events happen, uh, certain challenges are presented. And I'm just going to use one word, attitude. It's all in the person's attitude, whether they rise to the challenge or take that challenge or take that risk or engage in a conversation with someone and say, uh, and, and think, you know, I'm very interested in, in what you just said. I'd like to learn more. So, you know, I went to university, uh, not, not for academic reasons at all. It was for a sport uh, reason. And uh, I started my master's at University of Ottawa because uh, I, I went, really, I, I loved playing football, believe mm -hmm. it or not. And uh, uh, then uh, after University of Toronto, I went to Ottawa because this time I was into road cycling. And uh, I was going to, I applied for a master's in astrophysics, believe it or not, at University of Toronto and biomechanics at University of Ottawa because it was close to the Quebec uh, Gatineau Hills for road cycling. Mm. So I went there and then uh, playing hockey with the professor's team as a master's student uh, at Ottawa, we played uh, a game and there was a number of University of Waterloo professors there and I, I met one and, and fellow named Bob Norman, who ended up being my PhD mentor. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's the craziest story of 
someone originally never interested in academics who then became, uh, I spent the rest of my year my, my, uh, of my academic life in, uh, in a university. Mm-hmm. Crazy to think. Yeah. And I always like to, the reason I think it's so cool is because there's no one way to get anywhere. Right? Everybody always thinks, as you said, that somebody, like if you went into this, you had a plan and you kind of went with it, but there's so many times that, yeah, it's just an evolution of uh, an opportunity comes up. Do you go with that opportunity? Or you stay where you are, right? Are you willing to take that leap, that risk and evolve and step into the next challenge, as you said, right? So I think that's, yeah. uh, well, that's I good often, for people to know. I, I remember students would come to me for career advice or even with my own kids uh, you know, I would say, get a piece of paper, write down the pros and cons of deciding left or right or what, whatever the decision is. Mm-hmm. But uh, the guiding uh, overarching theme, I suppose, was don't move laterally, always mm-hmm. move forward. And uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, an undergrad might come to me and say, oh, I think I'm going to take another undergraduate degree. And I say, I do, I will wait a second now, mm-hmm. what, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Maybe a master's degree, but go and choose a school that's the very best school for yeah. your master's program. And if you still want to become something, uh, go find, now for your PhD, it's not the school, it's the person. Go find the best person in the world mm-hmm. at who, who has the skills and is successful and then go and copy them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so different thoughts for undergrads, uh, masters, PhD, or uh, I'm sure I would have been just as happy being a plumber. <laughs> fair, fair. Though, though your back may not have been in as good a shape as it is now as a plumber. Well, who knows? We don't, we don't know, but yeah. Um. So over the years, you've done um, a huge amount of research. You've um, like you've changed the way that a lot of people think about the spine and training and in rehabilitation. How has our understanding of the spine through the research, not only that you've done, but that other people have done as well, kind of changed the way that we we train, that we rehabilitate people with back pain or back injuries? Okay, uh, how? Well, the how has two parts. Uh, one thing uh, to, to, to answer the, the first part of the how is when I first started as a scientist, I only had one question, and that was how does the spine work? And it was to simply probe the spine under load, under stress, uh, etc., to try and figure out how it works and then how it becomes injured and that kind of thing. And then uh, about 20 years ago, I started the research clinic. Then it was time to test the theories and Mm -hmm. see if they uh, really worked. So, uh, and then of course the last bit for the how is then you have to do the knowledge transfer, which Mm -hmm. is publishing the work, uh, getting on the road and uh, attending medical conferences and accepting the speeches to give to different societies and sports groups or trainers or chiropractors or whoever. So that's the how side of it. But um, how has this changed the way people train and rehabilitate? Well, as you know, uh, 
there are several philosophical approaches around. And I'm sorry to say that some of them are based purely on marketing and in the world of social media, some of them are gaining popularity because of the crassness and the volume of the person yelling on social media. Mm -hmm. uh, but people don't fact check, yeah. uh, unfortunately. But uh, what our science uh, has converged upon time and time again is this notion of people come to me with the diagnosis, oh, I was told I have degenerative disc disease or nonspecific low back pain. And I said, well, that doesn't exist. Uh, all of our science has shown back pain is very specific. Can you imagine someone coming to you say, I've got nonspecific leg pain. Can you give me an exercise? Yeah. You know, it, it wouldn't be tolerated. So why do we tolerate this with back pain? Um, it requires a very thorough assessment to understand mm -hmm the mechanism, the pathways, maybe there's several conspiring together that are causing the person back pain. Well, uh, it requires a thorough assessment. When I started 40 years ago, I would say the orthopedic world knew how to perform a much more competent assessment than they do today. And there's, mm -hmm. there's several reasons, the reliance of, on technology, people have lost their skills. I don't think they have the time they used to have to spend half an hour or 40 minutes assessing a person's back. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, the assessment shows the mechanism and then the next part of what the science has shown is, uh, you have to address the cause. Mm -hmm. And if you don't address the cause, you will fail with, uh, with back pain. So usually people are able to identify activities, motions, postures, loads that trigger their back pain. Then it's the job of the clinician to find a movement hack or what we call spine hygiene mm -hmm. to accomplish that task without triggering uh, their pain. Yeah. And uh, the assessment will reveal what is missing in that person's athleticism and body that they're out of tune. Why is some part like their spine becoming painful? Uh, is it, do they need more mobility? Do they need more stability? Uh, so tune their body. And then the final bit would be to understand their biological adaptation stimulus. And what I'm talking about are volumes of training, how mm. much rest. There's a, a broad biological spectrum there. Mm -hmm. So you have to get an understanding on that. So you can then prescribe programs to stimulate adaptations, but they don't do any good at all until you prescribe the appropriate rest and adaptation schedules as well. So, yeah. you know, you, the, uh, I'm just thinking of a, a patient profile. One might be, here's a stay at home mom with two young kids. And uh, I'll say, uh, when was your last day off? And they'll say, what do you mean? I said, well, and then she says, what? I have to go to the gym every day to ride the elliptical for 20 minutes. That's my stress relief with my kids. And if I don't do that, I'll murder my husband. <laughs> and, and right away, we've just identified the exercise addict who will yeah. not get rid of their back pain because they don't let it rest. So, yeah. you know, uh, and then what else have we learned? Um, 
there are all sorts of interventions that are rather unidimensional. You know, someone can go and get ozone therapy on their disc or a cortisone injection, mm-hmm. or they might be told, oh, do yoga for your back. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with, with yoga if, if that's what you want to do, but there will be some of those exercises that will cause your pain and make it worse. And some of the poses will make it better, but yeah. without an assessment, you don't know what is making you better and what, what, what's making you worse. So uh, it, none of those address the cause. That's why, yeah. again, I come right back to the assessment. Mm-hmm. And I, I can give some final proof on this, uh, Adam, uh, as well. Um, We followed up with every patient who ever came to our experimental clinic at the university. So over 20 years, we followed up with every single patient. I don't Mm -hmm. know of another back pain clinic that did that. I can tell you that, uh, you know, you have to subcategorize the patients, but if their category was this, you've been told You've tried all of these interventions for your back. They've all failed. The last option for you is surgery. If that's the category that you're in. So these are the heavy cases now. Yeah. I can tell you if they followed our program, getting assessments, winding down the pain, uh, building an appropriate foundation, and then uh, an athleticism, 95% of them were, were able to avoid the surgery and after a two-year follow-up, we're glad that they did. Mm. So um, 18 out of uh, 20 people were glad that they avoided surgery. So yeah. that's that's a pretty good uh, track record because remember, those people were shooting zero. They yeah. were told your last hope is. So I can go through all the subcategories and give you the uh, success rates. But uh, anyway, there's a, a, yeah. a sorry of a longer essay, but uh, <laughs> it's an answer to that how question. Yeah. And I think, so going back, you mentioned that there's no such thing as non-specific back pain. I think when most people think about that, it's often due to somebody else can't find my problem and maybe diagnostic imaging doesn't show anything. So obviously there's no reason, like it's non-specific. There's no specific reason why it's there. But as you said, there's always going to be motions or postures or loads that are going to make it worse and make it better, right? You're going to 99% of the time, you're going to be able to find something that is going to either make it worse or something that you're going to be able to do to make it better. And as you said, a good assessment is going to get you there, right? So finding somebody who can perform a really good assessment, such as yourself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if there's uh, if they get a diagnosis of non-specific back pain, it's not that the back pain is is non-specific; it's that the clinician was not specific. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you mentioned uh, MRI images. Uh, I don't know how that ever became the gold standard. Yeah. I think that's driven by surgeons who have a knife. Yeah, and they have to cut the pain out, so they need a visual target to direct the knife. That's mm-hmm. how the MRI, I think, became a little bit of a gold standard. But, you know, it's just tragic the number of people who have uh, a good example would be whiplash, for example. Yeah, they their MRI shows nothing wrong, 
and they are accused of malingering. Why do you have these aura headaches and, you know, or you're catastrophizing? Yeah. You have a psychological issue. There's nothing of the sort. When we watch their spine move through the range of motion under video fluoroscopy, which is real-time moving x-ray. So mm. it's watching the bones through the range of motion. See, MRI is a static picture. Yeah. You know, if I have a broken finger, can you see it? on the MRI, it probably not unless, uh, or you, you may or you may not is the point. Yeah. But if, if you watch a person's neck that's been whiplashed go through the range of motion, the vertebra are rotating, rotating, and then they clunk, clunk, and then they'll go, Ugh, that's my pain. Well, yeah. again, you can't see that on an MRI. It's a, it's a dynamic laxity uh, mm -hmm. in, in the joint. And uh, that type of laxity doesn't heal in the time statute for the workers' compensation board and some yeah. of these uh, statutes where they say, well, if you have back pain that lasts longer than 12 weeks or three and a half months, uh, you must be faking it because yeah. tissues heal in that time. Well, hold on, wait a second. Now <laughs> that joint laxity uh, will take uh, several years yeah. to uh, stiffen up. But anyway, it's uh, so interesting. Yeah. And I think anybody who's ever had even an ankle sprain, right, understands that it's, you may be out of pain at that point, but the laxity doesn't just snap back. It's not instantly, you know, tightening back up and getting back to the, the same length that it was before that injury. That's why people have, among other reasons, recurring ankle sprains all the time, right? Because the laxity hasn't left yet. And there are so many regional syndromes uh, you know i think of uh, tmj temporal mandibular joint here someone who went and got a wisdom tooth out when they were under anesthesia and the joint got stretched and mm -hmm. maybe the disc was displaced in the in their jaw and now their jaws cracking and it's loose and they've yeah. got you know real pain if they were to talk as long as we are in a podcast like this it's very disabling and yeah. so troubling that they will be uh, dismissed and and but no one can see their damage on an mri therefore it doesn't exist it's uh, yeah just again non-specific clinical <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um i'll use the word incompetency yeah, I know. So I tore my right bicep uh, coming up, I guess, on two years now. And I remember you talked about with the spine specifically, obviously, like, like surgery is the last option. If you've went through every single other option and nothing has helped, you've seen everybody you could ever see, nothing's worked, then maybe you go and do surgery. And I talked to somebody else and they're like, yeah, like your body's really good at adapting. Like surgery often isn't needed. Your body will adapt to not having a bicep, not having this and that. And so I was really struggling with whether or not I should have the surgery or not thinking about you and uh, the other person I was talking to at the time talking about that. Uh, but the surgeon that I had was actually really good. He's like, I don't need to see your MRI. I, I, I know what's going on there. I just did my test. And right. So he did a really good assessment. He's like, yep. Yeah, you've ruptured your distal bicep tendon. We're either going to repair it or we're not. You got two weeks to decide, go. Right. Well, like to be very clear blunt. on that. If, if you had a distal bicep uh, avulsion, I uh, would almost always recommend it get repaired because the risks are low mm -hmm. and uh, you're quite disabled without a, a 
biceps. So I, I, I wasn't just to be clear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but certainly, if we were going to talk spine surgery, I'd need some more details. But uh, <laughs> a, a distal bicep is one you want to get fixed. <laughs> yeah, the num the numbers he was throwing out for me with regards to the amount of uh, like your range of motion will stay the same. There'll be no issue there. You'll only lose about. 20% of your flexion strength because it's not the primary flexor, but he's like supinations where you're going to notice a drastic decrease. And me being like, I love woodworking. It's like, well, try woodworking without being able to supinate your right arm, right? Like, or play hockey or lacrosse, like I like to do as well. Right. Just so I was like, I'm I'm young enough. I'm just gonna, I just decided to go and do it. So yeah, I took yeah, it's, advice, but. it's amazing the uh, number of athletes who've had really substantial bicep tears. I think of a couple of uh, top MMA fighters. Uh, both were very highly ranked in the UFC with, with really distorted looking uh, biceps. And uh, believe it or not, I, I measured their, their striking ability and they were both pretty good on, on the compromised arm. Yeah. Maybe you'll say, well, you don't use your bicep very much, but you, th you think you would for a hook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lots of stability there. You still have to pull it back, right? Yeah. So outside of uh, the non-specific back pain myth or misconception, what other kind of misconceptions or mistakes do you see in training and rehab when it comes to dealing with the health of the spine? Because I know you've had a lot of conversations on other podcasts and other presentations you've done talking about things like Jefferson curls and things like the different types of discs that we see and their ability, their resiliency, their ability to twist, create stability. What are some of the big myths or mistakes that you see in those two areas? Well, there are many, so obviously I can't give a comprehensive list, but I'll, I'll pick a few here. And uh, the evidence comes from, first of all, pattern recognition and let's say population study approaches. So we've studied uh, many groups, uh, homogeneous groups. We, we studied the ETF, which is the SWAT team of the Toronto Police Force for mm -hmm. five years. We got an award for uh, having one of the longest longitudinal trials. We had 70 men with zero dropout over those five years. So a very stable uh, employed uh, base. Now, if I said to you, these are elite police officers who yeah. train every day, where do you think the most dangerous place uh, is for a emergency task force member? I'm going to assume in the gym. Yes, you're correct. Because we're talking about that. So I just, I was, I probably yeah, would have guessed something else, but yeah. People would think, well, you know, they rappel down buildings and training. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, uh, it's so interesting. I learned a lot about police tactics, but, uh, you mm -hmm. know, there's a sniper on top of a building and then there's a number one and number two on the ground. Number one is down on one knee with a, an assault rifle. Number two is hovering over behind him. Are, I'm assuming we're on uh, uh, audio and visual. 
I, I'll post the video as well, yeah. Yeah, so the number two man is hovering over in kind of a short stop position, covering yeah. the back of the number one man. You know, how do they stay in that position for 20 minutes? You know, you think all yeah. of this would, would create back pain, but no, the ones who had the worst backs were the ones who were lifting heavy and really overtraining mm -hmm. in the gym. So the strongest and the most fit were not the ones who had the least uh, pain. And we kept converging on this opinion, group after group, sufficient mm -hmm. strength, sufficient fitness, mm -hmm. not too much and not too little, will give the best back and the best orthopedic health of the uh, joints. We looked at firefighter groups, military groups, different occupational groups, and different athletic groups as well. So, you know, again, uh, for the, what I call the unidimensional sports, like uh, you won't find a weak power lifter. You have the strongest wins in other words, but does the strongest win in a cage match in MMA? No. no. No, you know, there's so many other variables with strategy and technique and, and, and all the rest of it. So again, that requires such a spectrum of ability to compete mm. in uh, MMA, whereas powerlifting, it's three events or a high jump. It's one <laughs> repetition of being a uh, wound up spring and, and storing and recovery that elastic energy and jump over a bar. Yeah. Um, so uh some people think that oh if i strengthen my back i'll get out of pain uh it may be true or it may be the worst thing they can do once again the assessment will will show so that's um probably the first misunderstanding um, another one is just common to every rehab and uh strength and conditioning uh, coaching situation and that is the, the progression is too quick mm. you know I'll have a mom who who comes in and she says well the trainer had me lifting my body weight deadlifting my body weight after three months and now I've got an end plate fracture and you know which is compressive damage to the spine now they have joint laxity they're, they're in for a little bit of a, a time with their back yeah um not getting the balance in the body between mobility and stability, not only in within a region of the body, but distributed uh, throughout the body uh, might be uh, another one. Um, programming mistakes, so people mixing up mobility and strength, for example, doing deadlifts and yoga all in the same program, which cause opposite stimuli for adaptation mm -hmm. that shows me the person doesn't have a goal that uh, they're driving for or if they want to be middle of the road they want a little bit of mobility a little bit of strength a little bit of explosive power what that means is biology won't let them have the ultimate of any one of those because everything's a trade-off yeah. you know uh in in physiology and neuroscience which which you studied with bill for example mm -hmm. um the, the 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 neurology of the 
uh, speed of contraction and the metabolism and whatnot is, is a, a trade-off. If you have an explosive metabolism and you train to uh, allow some of the fast twitch to behave like, uh, sorry, a slow twitch to behave like a fast twitch, uh, you sacrifice the endurance. If mm -hmm. you train endurance, you can't have explosive power. Yeah. So how far do you want to swing on that pendulum? So this is a programming error when people mm -hmm. get greedy and they think, oh, biology will allow me to be an explosive and durable, highly mobile, <laughs> uh, you know, and you can't adapt your body that way. You'll, you'll usually break down in, in a, a, an area of the body that's carrying too much stress and you, you cross the biological tipping point. So I don't know if that was the type of discussion you were yeah. looking for. No, that's good because I, I think that gives a couple like follow-up questions because I think when you're looking at, um, like let's use yoga as an example, right? Yoga, slow movements, getting into deeper and deeper stretches, trying to elongate, get past that stretch reflex, get into kind of elongating the tissues, gaining more mobility around the, or flexibility around the joints themselves, how could somebody who is wanting to control all those end ranges of motion and be strong? And when I'm saying strong, I'm not saying like a power lifter with that kind of range of motion, because that's not going to happen, but feel strong in those positions. What would you recommend for somebody who has a lot of range of motion, wants to gain, let's use the word, maybe stability in those end ranges to control those ranges? Right. I, I think I get your question. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to establish a couple of principles, uh, first of all, Adam, uh, if I can. Um, first of all, if I use the word stiffness, some people think of that as a not a good thing to have in your body, when in fact, it's what the body uses to control movement. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you increase the range of motion, uh, you also increase the requirement for control. Mm -hmm. Uncontrolled end range motion is not good. Can you imagine if I was on a squash court or a tennis court, I went into the corner and I did a backhand. Now I'm slamming my elbow into the end range of joint motion. I'm going to hurt the olecranon of the elbow probably yeah. with two bony stops. So there was stiffness now. So when a muscle contracts, it creates force. Everyone knows that, mm -hmm. but it also creates stiffness. So if I contract my bicep and my triceps maximally, I can't move my elbow. I've stiffened out the movement. So yeah. the body uh, activates muscles to modulate stiffness and control emotion. So you see, that was a stiffness requirement. Um, people who have a lot of un uh, a big motion, uh, we studied a group of Middle Eastern belly dancers, a group of women who had fabulous mobility. They had unbelievable control, as you can well imagine, mm -hmm. but they had almost well, such unimpressive strength. Not one could do a sit-up when we asked them, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the more mobility a person has, the higher the requirement for control and stiffness. Well, if you lose inherent joint stiffness, all you have left is modulated stiffness, which comes from the motor patterns of you activating muscles in certain patterns. So you don't hurt joints with, with stress overload at the, uh, the end range. 
But uh, so there's the first example of mobility and stability. It's the yin and the yang, and mm -hmm. both are necessary. You can't have a lot of mobility without controlling stability, yeah. and you and 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 vice versa. So they these things have to be tuned within a body, and it's it's often a great cause of uh, injury throughout uh, different joints. We yeah. see it in knees for sure, but you know, my area of expertise is the spine. Let me give a, a couple more examples, if I can, about this dance between st stability and mobility and how ultimately they have to be tuned to create resilience. Can I do that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so the first one recognizes that the body is a linkage. Uh, my arm, every segment forms a link. Well, another linkage is a backhoe. So think of a backhoe, which is a tractor, and it has an arm with an elbow and a wrist, and it digs earth. So mm -hmm. it creates distal pulling force or distal athleticism. The first thing the operator of the backhoe does is they put down the stabilizer bars to mm -hmm. lift the back wheels off the ground. That locks the tractor, which is proximal, into the ground. And if they don't do that, they'll never have an athletic pull because it just pulls the tractor around. Yeah. So you have to create a home base for all distal movement. Now consider a bench press. Uh, if I say I could uh, bench press uh, 300 pounds, which I was writing a little bit of a summary the other day, and I, I, I have done that, believe it or not, in nice. my 20s. But anyway, uh, benching 300 pounds develops pec major muscle but the pec is a uniarticular muscle. It just crosses the shoulder joint. So when I contract the pec in a bench press or to create a push distal to the ball and socket joint, the shoulder, it flexes my arm and creates the pushing motion. Yeah. But think of what the same pec muscle does proximally. It bends my rib cage towards the shoulder. So if I'm going to push an opponent or a door or something like that, Distally, I get the desired effect, and proximally, I just collapse my body, and mm -hmm. I have a net sum athleticism of zero. Yeah. I didn't create proximal stiffness. So uh, this time, I'm going to lock my core down, stiffen my hips, root into the ground. I've arrested the proximal movement, so now 100% of the movement is distal, creating the athleticism. So there is an example where proximal stability is non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. What's the mother of all proximal in the body? It's your core. So, you know, I've heard people argue, oh, the core isn't that important. It doesn't enhance performance. I don't know what data they're looking at. <laughs> they, I don't think they've ever measured uh, yeah. how this linkage works. I mean, I can't even walk. We, I'm assuming you did some walking studies with Bill McElroy at mm -hmm. the neurology ward. If you take a, a little girl from, uh, say, uh, Sunnybrook Hospital who had a paralyzed quadratus lumborum, and they, they uh, tried to walk. Say my right QL was paralyzed. I could stand on my right leg and create a left leg swing, no problem. But then when I plant my left leg and swing my right, I, I, my, my spine just 
gives way, it collapses mm -hmm. because it's unable to create that proximal stability on that one side. Well, of course, an assessment would would reveal all of this. So, you know, I can give example after example of mm -hmm. that interplay between stability enables distal mobility. It's 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 absolutely uh, non-negotiable. But let me take a. Uh, uh, a spine example now with a, uh, a disc. Um, why is the hip a ball and socket joint? The shoulder is a ball and socket joint. Why don't we have ball and socket joints in the spine? Well, the reason is a ball and socket joint has a lot of motion in it. It therefore requires a lot of control to control the motion. There's a massive muscle complex around the hip. It's the biggest in the body. Yeah. And another massive muscle complex around the shoulder, above, behind, anterior, below, you know, latissimus dorsi, enormous shoulder yeah. control. Can you imagine if we had a stack of ball and socket joints? It would be <laughs> like stacking a pile of ping pong balls and yeah. then putting a book on top. They just collapse and you would have to have a torso that would be so wide you couldn't fit through a door. So discs offer a stiffness mm -hmm. and uh, that's uh, so now we don't need as much muscle to stack the pile of ping pong balls or your vertebra and it allows us to have enough mobility to allow things like tying our shoes and propagating the race and all this sort of stuff but uh, it, it, it you know the, the the price you pay is now you've got a little bit of uh the, the the disc is not a ball and socket joint. It's yeah. actually an adaptable fabric mm -hmm. made of collagen fibers. And now if you add too much mobility, those collagen fibers delaminate and they slowly work apart. Well, the collagen fibers uh, are surrounding a hydraulic structure. The middle of the disc is a gel. And mm -hmm. that hydraulic gel will slowly seep through the delaminations and you'll end up with a disc bulge with too much motion and too much uh, load. So there's a, a, an example of why we don't have ball and socket joints, highly mobile. Uh, we, we get the stiffness and control from the discs. But again, I keep saying this, biology does not give infinite capacity. There's always a trade-off. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, you know. and I, th I think people always want to look at the exceptions to those rules as well, right? They look at exceptions to those and they're like, oh, well, so-and-so can do this. They can, you know, they're a yogi, they can bend this way, but they can also lift this much and they've got no back pain. It's like <laughs> exception to rule, not the rule itself, um, right? There are always, well, uh, one thing I've been very fortunate in my career is I've worked with elite athletes who have set world records in many, many sports. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been very, very lucky. Every single one has been touched by the hand of God. Mm -hmm. They are peculiar. If you think, or I think, I will ever be able to hit a golf ball, uh, lift a fabulous weight, uh, sprint 100 meters in 9.8 seconds, we're dreaming. Mm -hmm. These people are so unordinary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we just had uh, Brian Carroll 
who I wrote the gift of injury yeah. book with. I don't know if you know, Brian just set the world record all time human squatting. He's just squatted 1,306 pounds. Wow. Now, if you talk to Brian, um, I'll say, could you do that again? And, you know, it's so funny when kids say, oh, yeah, I know how to squat. Or, uh, you know, I'd ask a group at the university, uh, does everyone know how to bench press? Oh, yeah, yeah, we know how to bench press. Are you kidding? Go hang out with Bill Kazmaier and you will have yeah. an hour lecture just on the beginning of setting up a bench press. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they haven't a clue. Yeah. And uh, anyway, getting back to Brian he always said, I knew I had a perfect lift in me. Well, here's a guy who's been world-class competitive for 20 years, and yeah. he is still looking for his perfect lift, but yeah. he pulled it out of the bag that day. You know, I think of Blaine Sumner, who uh, holds, I don't know if he still holds it, I think he does, the world's uh, record for Wilkes score. So Wilkes mm. score, for those who don't know, is the highest uh, body weight adjusted powerlifting score so it's a combination of a deadlift a bench press and a squat normalized to your body weight who has the highest score for your body weight and it's Blaine Sumner hmm. Blaine weighs well over 300 pounds by the way but uh, nonetheless you know I was talking with him a, a couple of weeks ago about the psychology required to will your body to get under that kind of load and just tell your body, I'm going to lift this because every circuit breaker in your body is telling you not to do this. It's a, it's a yeah. very, a, not a nice place to be. And uh, he, and we were talking about the dark place where those kinds of athletes go to. Brian has it, uh, you know, all the great ones, Eddie Cohn, Bill Kazmaier, uh, Andy Bolton, yeah. Uh, you know, they, they have, the, oh, Eddie Hall, this uh, strong man from UK, they have this dark place where they can take their mind and shut down all the fuse boxes that tell you don't do this. And uh, to reach that dark level, if you can't reach the dark level, it takes 200 pounds off your squat. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so you talk to Brian, can, can you replicate that squat? Probably not. That mm -hmm. was that was his best squat. And yeah. you'll talk to other athletes as well, and they can come up with, yeah, that was the, I, I'll remember that for the rest of my life. I'll remember, and people as well, you know, they'll say they're a golf, they're a duffer golfer. But, yeah. you know, I, I know myself, I'm not a golfer, but I just remember I hit one ball one time in my life where it was straight and true and far. And I thought I was ready for the PGA. But I only ever had one, and it was just the dumbest of things conspired. So somehow my body organized it. Oh, yeah. But I could never do it again. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's funny because I was just uh, – I was watching TV the other day, the the hockey game, I believe, last night, and there's a new tailor-made commercial that's on. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's that's the one that will keep you coming back, right? That one right. shot uh, every round. There's one shot every round that you're like, oh, that was a really good shot. It's usually on the last hole – typically and you're like okay yeah no that hole i'll yeah i'll come back next week but the rest of my <laughs> the other 17 holes sucked but the 18th was pretty good so i'll come back next week um so i one follow-up question uh because i want to get to some of the other kind of micro movement and injury related things in the in the second half but kind of one follow-up question is how do we determine 
like as a, as a trainer, let's say where the line is with the amount of range of motion that we actually want somebody to have in the spine. Okay. Well, you've got to know the training goal. Uh, now for some people, that's quite easy. They are an athlete. So mm -hmm. when you assess the demands of the sport, and if you don't know the sport, you're not the expert, you shouldn't be dealing with this yeah. athlete. So you've got to know the sport. So say uh, Olympic rowing. So there's an example where you need a range of motion in the spine if you're going to win the Olympics, yeah. uh, which I, I'm dealt with a, a lot of elite rowers over the years. I don't know. Do, do you know who my wife is? I don't think I've ever. Uh, she she rode for Canada in the 80s. Okay. Um, but over the last five years, she's won uh, the Masters, Canadians, Americans, and the Worlds. For oh. Masters awesome. women, wow. yeah, heavyweight women. So, I uh, <laughs> just uh, I, I do know a little bit uh, about rowing, <laughs> and um, uh, th there's an example where you need, I'll just back up a little bit. I've, I've done some work with Olympic uh, programs. Interestingly enough, only individual rowers in Canada, Rowing Canada has never asked me for oh, a consult, okay. but yeah. Olympic programs from other countries have. Yeah. And I remember one country, they, they really wanted to put on a good show at the Olympics and they were two Olympics upstream of the one that they had to perform. Well, you, you can imagine they were a host country, but anyway. Yeah. Um, and they said, you know, can you start consulting now to help us uh, identify uh, athletes who's gonna be world-class in eight years and all this sort of stuff and what training programs do we need and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and by the way, they had a big uh, back problem. Mm. I don't know if you know rowing, but there are two basic philosophies to training a rower uh, through rowing styles. One is the big C shape. So they really reach at the catch, really flex the spine, and then pull with the hips and then unfold the C at the end. So it's a big range of motion uh, kind of a style. Mm -hmm. And uh, they train them with things like deadlifts. So it's, you need a really strong back to uh, do that kind of uh, rowing style. And mm -hmm. you can hear it in a boat as it's rowing down the course. The next, so I call them the grunters. You can hear them in the boat. With each uh, rowing, we'll, we'll, we'll call it a, you can think of it as a, a stroke or a stride. Yeah. And then the next rower has a very different sound in the boat, and it's a whoomp. And what I mean by that is it's a whoomp, whoomp. And if I can show you with my hands, there's the C type of rower curving into what's called compression. So they go up the rowing slide, their knees compress into their chest, they flex their spine, and then it's a big grunt through the range of motion. Mm -hmm. But the other athlete sits tall in the boat. And so they go up into compression, and then they come out of compression, they're winding it up, and then as the oars are 90 degrees to the boat, so you have a much more efficient sea in, in 
creating boat speed from the amount of pull, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. And then the hips pulse and watch my hand mimicking the spine, the hips pulse, the spine bends a tiny bit and then whips. Yeah, so okay. it's a storage and recovery of elastic energy, both yeah. are rowers. Yeah. But if you mix up the grunters with the whompers in a crew of eight you're going to have a problem the boat mm -hmm. won't be a fast boat but you'll see how the uh, the 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 ones who can whomp and really get the elasticity going in the uh in in the boat and by the way you know these uh like the crossfit games on the rowing ergometers yeah uh, the more you pull the longer the pull throughout pulling on an ergometer on a chain uh, it doesn't have blade angle efficiency to it yeah so just pull like crazy and, you, and you'll win <laughs> crossfit but yeah. you will be probably the slowest boat on the course yeah anyway getting back to this idea of um uh th th this this trade-off there's just an example of how much mobility do you need mm -hmm. if you have back issues uh, chances are you're going to survive to an elite level sitting upright in the boat and becoming an elastic rower with less spine range of motion. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a back issue and you're really strong and you tend to be a grunter, you can still reach uh, Olympic levels, but uh, now you have a lot of spine range of motion. But what we did in the Olympic program with the ones who are having real back pain, we took out all the deadlifts and the and and we got them to sit taller in the boat and now we restricted their spine range of motion. They were just mm -hmm. as fast. Mm. In fact, they actually became a little faster. Yeah. However, they got hip impingement at a higher rate. Mm. So do you see how the to, to row you need mobility. Yeah. If you have spine pain it to survive, you're going to have to take it out of your back. But now if you don't have it in your back going into compression, you need even more hip flexion compression, which is hip yeah. impingement. Yeah. So then we, you know, we have to fiddle things like lower the foot stops and spread the feet, externally rotate them slightly, etc. So, you know, these are such interesting discussions to have. Mm -hmm. But I keep coming back to this idea of tuning um, and uh, I'll give you another example. You know, you, you look at the uh, basketball players, for example, those who yeah. are shorter in the body and longer in the leg, they're hip jumpers. Um, those who are longer in the body and shorter in the leg, and I think of some of the big Eastern European players who have that kind of a physique, a much longer body, they're yeah. knee jumpers, which is so interesting. Yeah. So they have knee mobility, whereas the, the other players with shorter bodies and much longer legs don't need knee mobility, nor do they need a, a big calf muscle because you know that's not their, their power. They jump from their heels and anyway yeah. i can go on and on about how these discussions of mobility certainly they're sport specific but even yeah. within a sport once we start subcategorizing what's the athletic gift is it elasticity is it strength is it explosive neurology and trying to optimize that then we can have a much more definitive and targeted discussion about how much mobility is uh, is required but i can tell you this the more mobility you have and the more strength you have through the range of motion in your spine mm -hmm. the greater the chance of 
things being seen by someone for a disc bulge. I can tell you that. We know that epidemiologically. We know that from our testing of spines. Uh, we know it from occupational groups, et cetera. Yeah. So before we finish off, uh, just a kind of random question. How many times have you ever had the discussion with somebody who wants to do something, but their body, maybe they don't have the structure in the body to be able to perform it. How many times have you had to have that discussion surrounding specifically the spine? Maybe somebody wants to be, you know, or they want their kid to be an elite golfer, let's say, and they just don't have the mobility in the body to be able to sustain that with any level of resiliency. Have you ever had those conversations? Thousands. <laughs> Here at BackFit Pro, we'll get a younger athlete and one of the parents, usually the father, and they're injured, they're back injured. Mm -hmm. uh, they can't compete, they can't train, and they might be at the junior Olympic level. Mm -hmm. They might be uh, just living the dream of the father, but uh, we have those uh, conversations uh, a lot. I can say, well, you can continue, you can compete at this uh, game this weekend if you wish, um, but let me ask you a question. Where do you want to be in five years? Mm -hmm. And uh, you could pitch this weekend and uh, chances are you'll, you'll never make the uh, major leagues. Uh, you, you know, say they have a stress fracture or a spondy just yeah. waiting to happen. Uh, that's what the assessment shows. Um, but, uh, you know, these are the decisions they make. And then the next one, clearly their kid doesn't have the touch from God that will be required to, uh, to make it. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a conversation to uh, have what's your goal mm -hmm. is it to be a better adult a better human a better mom and dad um and then we have this with with grown-ups as well i'll say you know what's your goal and uh they'll say oh i i want my next personal best i said really you know who's paying you a million dollars to yeah. sacrifice your body for your next personal best and they say well you know it you know, in their face book group and whatnot, they're, they're, they, they get uh, support for this. Yeah. And, then I'm, and then I have a, another conversation and I say, how about this? If I said to you, how about a goal of you're going to be the best rocking granddad, 78-year-old granddad on the face of this planet, how would that grab you as a goal? And they'll say, wow, I never thought of that. I like mm -hmm. that goal. And I'll say, good, because you're not going to make it <laughs> with, with the current yeah. way that you are. Uh, because, you know, there is a expiration date. Uh, when I work with master's athletes who have world records, very few of them were Olympians when they were younger. The Olympians are now used up. The mm -hmm. pro athletes are used up. They're, they're in pain and uh, they're not very athletic. The 80-year-old uh, who has the uh, shot put record found shot putting when he was 72 <laughs> <laughs> because he still had something left in his body. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we see this a lot. But anyway, it comes down to an honest conversation. What, do you, what are your real goals? And if I can shape them sometimes, uh, I have a much better chance of uh, 
adapting their body to a pain-free state mm-hmm. and uh, being sufficiently athletic yeah. is the key, not maximally athletic. That shortens your, your, your life uh, as an athlete. Yeah. And I like that honest conversations, um, often hard to have even harder to hear, but very important when we're looking at, you know, in the fitness health industry, rehab industry, making sure that we are doing what is in the client's athlete's best interest. Um, yeah. All right. I, I, I think of the honest conversation my father had with me in the room with the guidance counselor in high school when the <laughs> guidance counselor said, this boy has to go to trade school. He's wasting his time here. And uh, I was going to be a plumber anyway. But anyway, there you go. So there's the other side of it as well. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> and I would have been a very happy plumber. All yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think this is a great place to end part number one, and we will pick it up talking all about uh, a bit more injury specific, uh, get into talking about micro motions in the spine in part number two. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.